Welcome to Underground Magnolia Podcast, Elevated Entertainment, with me, the one and only Desiree Valto in the whole wide world. We are living in tough times these days with upsetting Supreme Court decisions, an uptick in crime, especially with guns, and inflation that has raised the price of food, gas, and more. But take a break for a while. Relate, relax, and release. And get ready for some great music. On this episode of Underground Magnolia Podcast, I'm chatting with T.S. Monk, the prolific jazz drummer, composer, and band leader. After a decade-plus recording absence, he's back with two continents, one groove. Monk will tell us all about his latest release and the inspiration behind the songs that were recorded live. We will also do a deep dive about his main influence, his pioneering jazz pianist and composer father, Thelonious Monk. He's considered by many as the father of modern jazz. The younger Monk, also known as Thelonious Monk III, doesn't miss a beat with a history lesson about his father's contribution to jazz, an American art form created by African Americans. He also waxes poetic about other jazz greats he grew up around in his New York home, including Miles Davis, Art Blakey, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, and Max Roach. Additionally, T.S. Monk will sing the praises about playing in his father's band and the music and life lessons that helped him succeed as a jazz star in his own right. Interestingly, the 1980 album House of Music kicked off the Younger Monk's recording career in R&B. He and his own band released their biggest chart single, Bon Bon V. The track dripping with a jazzy funk sound could have poised T.S. Monk for a career in the R&B pop world, but tragedy struck and forced him out of music for several years. Eventually, he found his way back to his jazz roots and is hailed for his music artistry all over the world. Yes, we have a lot to talk about, so let's get started with the present. T.S. Monk told me the pandemic started the wheels turning about coming out with a new release. But with no concerts or new material on the horizon, he began looking at live recordings that he had done over the years and chose seven songs for his latest Two Continents, One Groove. However, he knew putting out a live album would be a bit risky. When I listened to it, I started thinking about, well, what can I release, right? And my first thought was that I've got this live stuff in the can, but history tells me that most live records are horrible. They're inherently horrible because if you love the artist, it's hard to catch that artist on a really, really good night. And so everybody's got all this live stuff in the can. And I remember, you know, like years ago when I was a youngster, you know, I'd like go get this Temptations Live record, right? 
And like, it was just horrible. You know? It wouldn't sound anything like, Nothing like, like the radio the version. <laughs> right. So then I go running back to the studio recording. Right. So I said, OK, live albums are terrible, but let me listen to the stuff I've got in the can. You know, I listened to the stuff I'd done in New York and some stuff that I had done in Europe. And between the two, I said, oh, my God, we actually caught the band on some good nights with some really good tunes. I mean, you know, and the recordings were really sounded like not quite the isolation you get in a studio recording, but they had that live ambiance, which is nice if the performances are great. And I found all these great performances. And I said, you know what? I'm going to stick it on out there because, you know, a lot of jazz requires courage. It really, really does. (laughs) You have to lay yourself on the line and say, look, this is me. You know, my father used to tell me this. He said, you throw yourself out there and either you dig me or you don't. Right. So I said, this is me. This is my band. I think it sounds great. And I don't think I'm necessarily, given where I grew up, I don't think I'm necessarily a bad judge of a good performance. (laughs) You know, because I grew up around all these cats. What are you talking about? My father or Sonny Rollins or Miles or Dizzy or Coltrane, Max. Max Roach, Art Blakey, all these guys were in the house and all these guys, I got a chance to hear them on a regular basis and hang around them. And none of them really, they didn't drop any bombs. You know, everything they dropped was like dynamite. So I said, well, you know, I kind of know dynamite when I hear it. And although it's my band, I think I got some dynamite here and I'm going to test it. I'm just going to throw it out there and see what people think. And I think it's very, very, very good. I really, really do. As And not as live albums go, because really recording for jazz is a snapshot. That's all recording for us. It's how you felt in a particular place, particular audience, particular ensemble. And so I said, man, this sounds really, really good. In fact, I said to myself, I said, you know, if I didn't know this T.S. Monk character and I heard this record, I would want to go see him. Because if that band sounds anything like this live, I want to be at the show. There's a little bit of ego in there, but there's a lot of logic in what I'm saying right now. Yes, it's my own logic, but it is logical. (laughs) It's bring all that, what I call rock and roll stuff to the table. One of the things that I was always jealous of rock and roll bands was the fact that them guys, they really like to rehearse and they really (laughs) like it to be tight. So you can go and hear a rock and roll band that's got terrible tunes, but they're tight. They Mm -hmm. are tight, right? And so I said, man, we sound tight. The horn section is on the money. Everybody can play and everybody's brought their A game on these particular nights. So here we are, two, two continents, one groove. And people think, you know, I say one groove. I'm talking about one kind of tune. But the one groove is not about the tunes. The one groove is about the band itself. We recorded this at Jenny's in New York. And then we went 4,000 miles away to Bern, Switzerland, right? And the band sounded the same. Quite frankly, that's hard to do. That's hard to do. Most of the time, you know, you end up saying, oh, well, I heard them guys in New York and they sounded fantastic. Then I heard in San Francisco and I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Why just seven songs and how hard was it to select these songs? Well, I had a bunch of songs from a production standpoint because it's live. And this may be a little outside the box for listeners. But when you have a lot of sound, you need a lot of bandwidth. And so therefore, a CD only holds so much information because unlike a traditional vinyl recording, a CD is really holding data. And the more data you have, the more compression has to be involved. And so you start giving up sound. That's why people are going back 
to vinyl because you don't have that problem with vinyl. People say, wow, I listened to the CD version and then I went and bought the vinyl, man, and you hear the bass on the vinyl. And so there's a technical issue involved in how much music you stuff on a CD. And oftentimes with the younger generation, you know, some of the hip hoppers, you know, they'll put 27 songs on a CD and they all sound like, right? So that was number one. And it's 60 minutes of music, which is enough time, I feel, to not wear out your welcome. An hour is enough. You want people to come to the real concert. And at the real concert, you know, you can play for two hours, two and a half hours. And there's lots of things going on, lots of visuals and that kind of stuff. And so people can deal with it. Also, the actual performances. I'm very, very proud of the bands that I've been able to sustain over the years. That's why I haven't made a recording. Actually, I think it's 13 years, but I still work. And it's because my bands have always been so good live. So people always say, well, no, you don't got no record, but man, we need to get him because A, puts butts in the seats and B, he ends up with standing ovations all the time. So I wanted to really, really get fabulous performances out of these people that, quite frankly, they believe in me. The band. T.S. Monk tells us all about the players on Two Continents, One Groove. I'd love to take a moment, if you have it, for me to just tell you who's on the record, because that's really, really important to me. I have a, a young man by the name of Kenny Davis on the bass. And Kenny Davis, I met when I spent the year playing with, playing in the, the big band of another giant of jazz by the name of Clifford Jordan. And we were in Clifford Jordan's big band together in 1991. That's where I met him. And uh, Kenny has played and produced for Cassandra Wilson. And he was also the bass player with uh, Branford Marcellus on The Tonight Show for many years. A brilliant, brilliant bass player. The alto saxophone, as they like to say, alto saxophonist, (laughs) is a gentleman by the name of Patience Higgins. You go to a concert sometime and a cat will be telling you who's in the band and you say, and -and so-and-so played with everybody, right? And you always wonder, well, what what does that really mean? Did they really play with everybody? (laughs) Patience Higgins has played with everybody. I mean, from the Mingus Orchestra to Frank Sinatra to Aretha Franklin, everybody. Tenor saxophone is Willie Williams. Now, Willie Williams started out with TSOP, right? The Sounds of Philadelphia. And as a teenager, it was quite illegal. He was in the studio when he was like 13 and 14 years old. He was a prodigy and he's on records like he's one of the guys playing flutes on Close the Door with Teddy Pendergrass. And he's on records with Dexter Wanzell. He was one of Arthur Taylor's Whalers. And he joined my band when I first started it in 1992. And has been playing with me for 27 years. A brilliant, a brilliant tenor saxophonist who has now has a son, Ace, who is a brilliant trumpet player. I can't even believe that his son <laughs> is playing more trumpets than he's playing saxophone. 
He'll be the first one to tell you that. It's unbelievable. There's Helen Sung. Helen Sung was just on the cover of Jazz Times magazine. And Helen Sung is a young pianist who was from the first class of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz and graduated in 1998 under the tutelage of Ron Carter and Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. And she has worked with me off and on for almost the past 15 years. So this is the band. You know, and, and of course, I'm on the drums, you know, down there. Of course, the you're on the drums. But let me tell you something. When you have players like this, it's hard not to sound great. It's really hard. <laughs> You've got to work it not sounding good when you have players like this. And I've been very, very lucky. And there's a young uh, man. When we started the Monk Institute in 1987, there were a lot of jazz programs in the country. But there are only two or three that anybody really respected. That was Nathan Davis's program at uh, University of Pennsylvania and David Baker's program at Indiana, Alvin Baptiste in down there in New Orleans, uh, at NOCA. And of course, there was the great Jackie McLean had a program up in Hartford, Connecticut. And the young man playing trumpet on this particular CD, his name is Josh Evans. And he comes from the Jackie McLean program. He was one of Jackie's prize, absolute prize students. And he is a wonderful band leader. He has his own uh, big band. He writes a marvelous composer and truly a respecter of the history of jazz. Because on this CD, there's a tune called Ernie Washington. <laughs> I always laugh at this because there was a time when white America would say, all the black guys, they look the same. There was a thing in New York City called a cabaret card. And it was essentially a license to perform in the clubs. And many times the cabaret card was used to control African-American musicians. He took away a guy's cabaret card, he couldn't work. Uh, they took away Billy Holiday's cabaret card. I think for a while they took away Duke Ellington's cabaret card. And when they took my father's cabaret card, he said, they think we all look the same anyway, so <laughs> I'm going to change my name. And Thelonious Monk became Ernie Washington. Oh, wow. And, and so Josh Evans' tribute to Thelonious Monk, and it is a fantastic ballad. When you hear this ballad, you're going to say, Wow. Monk plays the drums on Two Continents, One Groove, but he has a confession to make about his playing style and then schools us on the historic importance of jazz for African-Americans, people of color, and people in general. I'll be the first one to tell you that I don't know if I've ever been the strongest player in my band. Oh! See, no, 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 let me explain, let me explain. <laughs> Band leading is a world unto itself. And look, if you take Miles Davis circa 1958, he had Paul Chambers, Cannonball Adderley, John Coltrane, Billy Joe Jones, you know, 
all in his van at the same okay, time. And, and Miles, <laughs> you could make a case that Miles was not necessarily the strongest player in his van. But you know what Miles knew how to do? He knew how to get all them guys to bring their A game to the studio every time. And that's what I pride myself on, creating an environment so that great players can play great. And that's what band leading is all about. That's why on my CD, it says, and on many of my recordings over the years, it's always said T.S. Monk band, because I'm a band leader and I enjoy being a band leader. I enjoy the fact that I can create an environment that is so much a home for cats and young ladies when they're there, that when the money is short, they'll <laughs> still come and play. That's very important because for a lot of people, it's very difficult to keep the players you want if you don't have the money to pay them necessarily. But the fact of the matter is, is that when great musicians are in an environment where they feel comfortable, where they feel they have a worth, where they feel they are part of something. They want to play, you see? And that's what I saw my father do. Because, you know, Monk had a hard time, particularly in his early years. But how did he get Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane? How did he get Clock Terry? These just super-duper players to play for him. It's because he created an environment where they felt that they had a worth. They had an investment in the end product. And so that was really, really important. So when you ask, well, why only seven tunes? I said, listen, I want to put my best foot forward and I want to put everybody else's best foot forward. And the reason, something that I've learned as a band leader is that those of us who have the privilege of having our name on the marquee in a jazz man, are just privileged and lucky because everybody on the band, say in a great jazz band, just as I enumerated the members of Miles Davis's band, everybody in a great jazz band is essentially a virtuoso on the instrument. They know their instrument forwards and backwards, inside and out, right? So to that extent, everybody is great. And you're no greater, those of us who have our name on the marquee, are no greater than those who interact with us because a jazz band is about, it's musical democracy, you dig? Even though I'm the leader, when somebody is soloing, they're the leader. And when they hand the ball to the next soloist, that soloist becomes the leader. So that's why I say it's a privilege to have your name on the marquee within the actual execution of the music. Everybody is, is the leader of the band at one point or another. The team is dedicated to the individual and the individual is dedicated to the team. It's remarkable. You know, I'm talking to you who's down in New Orleans, where's, you know, the birthplace of jazz. And the reality is, and I tell people this often, that those democratic ideals that we African-Americans and Native Americans and so on were denied came out in this music called jazz because we were told not to communicate. So we came up with this music where everybody is involved. We were told you can't know each other, but in jazz, this one can be from China, this one can be from France, you know, the drummer can be from Africa, and they can play a blues together because it doesn't matter where you come from. And everybody has something to say because we had nothing to say in this American environment back then. We created this, this music where everybody has something to say. So when you go on the bandstand, it's like, what you going to play tonight, man? And I'm, the cat says, yeah, I'm, yeah, I got something I'm going to play tonight. 
And I got something different I want to play tomorrow night and something different that I want to play the next night. So all these wonderful things about humanity, about human beings, the human experience come out in this music called jazz. And that's why for the years that I was the chairman of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, we came up with this thing, which is still going today, called International Jazz Day. And what we found was that at the time in 2015 or 14, when we founded the idea of International Jazz Day, uh, which was a Herbie Hancock idea, by the way, initially, we found that there were 190-something countries in the world, and I think we had 186 of them participated. So jazz is the one genre, the one singular genre that is basically played in every country of the planet Earth because this music is about the individual. It's about what you have to say. And everybody on the planet has something to say. I love what T.S. Monk is giving us. He keeps it going with how jazz influenced and continues to inspire contemporary music of all genres and how his father, modern jazz pioneer Thelonious Monk, prepped him for success. Jazz impacts every other genre. Every other genre. I do clinics with high school kids and I tell them, Given the harmonic and melodic pioneering done by my father, for instance, no monk, no parliament funkadelic, you dig? And they understand that. I mean, nowadays, you listen to, here comes this record, and it sounds like the vocalist is in one key and the band is in another key, right? How did that happen? Well, that did not happen automatically. But these innovations filter down to all the other genres. Then you take, for instance, the open and closed hi-hat of disco. Well, that was Art Blakey. You told Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea through Miles Davis brought the electric piano into the music. The likes of George Benson and Wes Montgomery and Cornell Dupree brought the electric guitar into what we today call classic R&B. So, Jazz is always, it's omnipresent in all the other genres. I often call it the unwilling amputee of all the other genres because there's always something innovative that's happening in jazz that filters down to the other uh, genres. On top of that, you have to understand that jazz has always impacted the other genres from its very, very inception. It's always done that. And I've often thought that what we do in jazz is universal. Everybody wants to be involved one way or another. We are the pride of the music world. We are admired by the classical artists. We are admired by the hip hop kids of today. We are admired by the R&B artists. We're admired by everybody. And when we come around, because I, I can tell you from personal experience, I get treated unbelievably respectfully. Whether I go to a country western concert, I go to a gospel uh, event or any of that, the way people talk to me, I can tell that they kind of put jazz on its own little pedestal. And it's very, very special. Jazz 
Raptors had a good run. I'm still working. Uh, When I was a kid, talking like six, seven years old, right? People would say to me, you know, man, your father is going to be bigger 50 years from now than he is today, right? Now, at five, six, seven, eight years old, 50 years sounds like 500 years. (laughs) You dig? But here I am 60 years later, and Thelonious Monk is bigger than he has ever been in his lifetime. Thelonious has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The street we lived on in New York City is now Thelonious Fear Monk Circle. <laughs> there is a permanent exhibit at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. We've donated his piano to the new African-American museum. He has got a lifetime Grammy. The town that he was born in and left at the age of three in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, named their Central Park after Thelonious Monk. He has a posthumous Pulitzer Prize. I mean, forget about it. This guy, all of these things came to pass after he died. After he died in 1982. I produced an album back in 19, I think, 99, called Monk and, and Coltrane Live at Carnegie Hall, which is the second or third biggest selling album in the history of jazz. I produced an album last year called Thelonious Monk live in Palo Alto, which was the biggest jazz record last year. So Thelonious is just doing fine. He's doing fine. Like I said, I've been very, very blessed and was blessed by God to understand what my father was doing. I spent the last five years of his career on the bandstand with him. Who'd have thought of that? You know, I mean, as my mother used to say, who'd have thunk it? So did you ever have any issues of, of playing with your father or wondering if you could live up to what he's lived up to? Was there any trepidation working with him and then doing your own thing? You know what? This is going to sound funny because, you know, I know I sound very well adjusted, but I am very well adjusted. My father took me aside when I was about eight or nine years old. And he told me one day we were at the airport. He was on his way out of town. And he told me, he said, look, there are people that are going to tell you, you got to be so-and-so because of me. Don't believe them. I love you. I don't care what you do. You do what you want to do. His philosophy on the bandstand was his philosophy for life. And what he did that day was he removed any shadow. He never said to me, you got to be a musician. In fact, I didn't start playing the drums till I was 15. He told me I was late, you know? <laughs> you, you, you dig? And you and didn't then, play the piano. And I didn't play the piano because I wasn't stupid. You okay. <laughs> you weren't going to try the piano. <laughs> no, 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 no. But also, on the serious side, every youngster that finds an instrument that they want to learn to play is because they saw it and they said to themselves, I could do that. I never felt that way about the piano. But when I went to recording sessions with my father and saw Max Roach, I said, I see what he's doing. I could do that. And so for me, it was the drums, just like for my father, going to see uh, Jelly Roll Morton and Willie the Lion Smith and and James P. Johnson, who lived on on the block where he grew up. He saw them and he said, I could do that. So my father, he never said I had to be a musician. It was brilliant, you know, because genius, when you find out a person is a genius in one area, unless they're a savant, they're generally a genius in a whole lot of different areas. When it came to me, he knew how tough jazz was. If I was going to be involved in it, 
He was going to let it be on me. I had to think it up myself. I had to decide to do it myself. So he never mentioned me. Now, everybody around me used to say, oh, do you play the piano? Are you going to play the piano? <laughs> piano right. Why don't you play the piano? But he never said a word about it. And then on top of that, when I said to my father, I think I want to be a drummer, beyond saying I was late, <laughs> beyond sending me to Max Roach's house, he didn't say another word for the next five, almost six years. I'm talking about not a word. I went from practicing 15 hours a day to an hour a day, to three hours a day, to five hours a day, seven and eight hours of practicing a day. And this man was in the room next to me. He never one time looked in the door and said, you sound good, you sound bad, you need to work, you need to study hard, you need to practice, nothing, zero. But when I was 20, 21 years old, I was still living in his house and he came in the house one day and he looked at me and said, you ready to play? And a week later, I was on the bandstand with him. Well, It was my idea, it wasn't his idea. So I could never get blamed for being pushed into that. I could never say, oh, you know, my father and they, they pushed me into this. He, he forced me. He forced me into it. Nothing like that. Not only did T.S. Monk have his father in his pocket as a young boy growing up in New York City with his parents and sister, he saw other jazz greats all the time. Miles Davis, Sonny Rollins, Max Roach, and John Coltrane were among the frequent visitors to the monk's home. The younger monk offers up a close-up view on some of the visits and also lets us in on a rumor going around for years about a piano in the kitchen. The likes of Coltrane, Miles, Sonny Rollins, Dizzy, all these cats, they were in the house all the time. I wasn't even required to know who they were. I was like... Most people, if you grow up in a home and you're living with your father or your mother or your parents, your parents got friends. Oh, my mother's best friend is Betty. But you don't know what the hell Betty does. Oh, my father's (laughs) best friend is is Fred from down the block. You don't know who Fred really is. Just know daddy's friend Fred. So all these cats were like just my father's friends. The only thing that I did notice was that they will all seem to have a little kind of personalized eccentricity, you know, that, you know. (laughs) These guys ain't regular. Because, okay, you, know, you got to tell me some of these eccentricities. <laughs> oh, that, well, that you noticed. Number one, the respect was insane. Uh, for instance, Miles Davis, who is known to the general public as this very forceful, arrogant individual, used to come to the door and knock on the door like a mouse. <laughs> and I would answer the door and he'd say, uh, Could you tell Monk that Miles is at the door? And I'd run inside and <laughs> say, Dad, uh, Miles says he's at the door, right? And and Miles would come in, and some days my father was there, right there, and Miles would come in, and they'd just sit down at the piano, and my father would start showing him stuff. But other days, Miles would come in, and my father would be in the room laying down, and Miles would sit down with his horn, sit down on the piano stool, and wait until Monk got up. To give him the knowledge, the know-how. Right. I remember one day, Sonny Rollins, I'll never forget, he came to the door with a mohawk hairdo and a weight in one hand and, you know, the <laughs> old-time heavy-duty saxophone cases in the other hand. And I knew this cat was nuts, you know. <laughs> All of these guys seemed to have their own little eccentricities that made me know that there was something special about them. Now, John Coltrane, I remember, I distinctly remember 
And I must have been maybe seven, eight, something like that. It was a period of time is stretched when you're a kid. So I don't know how many months it was, but it seemed like he was coming to the house every day. And my sister, who was four years younger than me, she was a little girl. So I would be looking after my sister and the apartment was so tiny. It was really tiny. And the piano took up almost the whole living room, dining room, kitchen area. And so that's where the the myth of Thelonious had his piano in the kitchen. There was nowhere else to put the piano. But uh, he would be yelling at Coltrane all the time. Right. And I remember saying to him, I said, you know, why is daddy yelling at this young cat? All of this young guy comes every day with his horn and daddy spends the day yelling at him. But what he was yelling to him was, yeah, play that note, man. Oh, you want to play two, you want to play two or three notes at a time? Go and play two or three notes at a time. Forget about the critics. They don't know nothing. And just pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And Coltrane acquiesced to the pushing. You know, he said, oh, yeah, monk. And of course, in his latter years, before he passed away, when he moved on to things like Kulu Say My Mind, Love Supreme, and My Favorite Things and all those, all that kind of stuff, when he would be asked, well, what happened between the time you were with Miles and what you're doing today? And Coltrane would always say, monk. But nobody wanted to believe it because monk was such a sort of enigmatic figure you know, who didn't talk a lot, didn't know much about him. He seemed kind of mysterious. And so nobody wanted to believe that that's what really changed Coltrane. But it was Monk that changed Coltrane. Getting back to my original point, I didn't know who these, I did not know these were <laughs> some of the greatest musicians of all time. When did you realize who they were? When I was 19. Yes, you heard correctly. T.S. Monk had no clue that his father was one of the greatest jazz artists ever and that the other men coming around for years looking for guidance were jazz idols as well. T.S. Monk goes on to explain that his realization came quite by accident when he was testing a speaker he was building. He didn't want to play newer music from the 60s for fear that he would blow out his homemade project. So he pulled out one of his dad's old records and made a fascinating discovery. It was a hot summer afternoon. I had the window open and I put this record on and I laid down and I put the needle on the record and I put my ear in the speaker. And my father played something that I never noticed, but I was now musically savvy enough to understand that what he played wasn't regular. He played this little melodic thing. I said, damn, what was that daddy just played? So I started the record over again and I played it again. I said, man, how did he do that? Did he cross his fingers? And I played it again and again and again. And I played that particular piece of just the very beginning of this record for about 35, 40 minutes over and over again. And it was that day when I was 19 years old, I realized that the guy in the room next to me was Thelonious Monk. This Thelonious Monk that people had been telling me about since the day I was born. They would always say, man, do you know who your father is? Right. And I'm saying to myself, how about daddy? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I didn't get it. But that afternoon, I got it. Why he had gotten such profound respect from all these other musicians and therefore who they were. And that's when I realized that I had been privy to be around uh, some of the greatest musicians of all time in the history of the planet Earth, you know, like Miles Davis, like Sonny Rollins, like John Coltrane and Dizzy Gillespie, Art Blakey, Max Roach, Clark Terry, 
Roy Haynes, Reggie Workman, and Bob Cranshaw, and I mean, just the greatest of the great, Ben Riley and, and Frankie Dunlop. And it was insane. Then I got a little scared. I got a little scared. But father used to tell me, don't be scary. I had to release the fear. And when he asked me to play, one thing I knew about my father, he was not going to compromise his music for me, even though I was his son. I knew he wasn't going to do that. So after about a week on the bandstand with him, when he didn't fire me, I knew I was doing something right. And the process of becoming a band member with Thelonious Monk was the same for me as it was for Art Blakey and Arthur Taylor and Frankie Dunlop and Ben Riley and all these cats. I remember saying to my father, oh, dad, you know, after you told me that you're going to play. And I said, yeah, he said, uh, are we going to rehearse? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, rehearse what, man? You know the music, right? We have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We, 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 we hit, man. We're going to hit. And we hit. And I talked with Max. I talked with Art. I talked with Ben Riley. I talked with a whole lot of cats, Roy Haynes. And they all said the same thing. When they went to play with Monk, there was no rehearsal, nothing. They just got on the bandstand and Monk would start playing. And you just got in the pocket. And that's how you learn. He wouldn't even count tunes off until after you had been there a while. He would count tunes off by patting your foot, but he had a little thing where he would let you kind of set the tempos in the beginning. Then he would learn every jazz musician, you know, has their fast tempo and their medium tempo and their slow tempo. It like, it has to do with the inherent rhythm in you, in your body. And so he would figure that out for you. And then he'd start picking the tempos in between the tempos that you felt comfortable with, you dig? And that would actually acclimate you to playing any tempo. So he was a genius on like so many levels and he didn't change his modus operandi for me. And I'm very, very grateful for that because that too is one of the things that I learned that has helped me to become a good band leader and how you let guys, you let them flow. You play their tunes, you let them solo and you let them solo. You don't restrict their soloing. You know, you don't say, hey man, only take three courses. You say, go on and play. If you got four choruses to play, play four choruses a solo. And if you don't, don't. <laughs> it's been a magic carpet ride for me. And this particular CD, I have to say, is one of my proudest. It's one of my proudest because when you have all the controls that are available in the studio, it makes things a little bit easier. You can control tempo. You can control natural human fluctuations in tempo. You can go back. You can redo it. You can say, oh, I don't like this take. I like that take. But in that, Monk was a one-take guy. He used to tell Charlie Rouse, he said, man, you better get it right in this take because if you don't, you're going to live with it the rest of your life. All these performances on this record, that was the take. And if that's you didn't it. dig it, I feel bad for you, but that's who you are. And that's who you were at that particular moment in time, in that space in that environment. And you're going to have to live with it for the rest of your life. I'm just glad that I've got the kind of performances on this record. I think everybody will be proud of. Proud of.
Playing with his dad and other well-known artists was all one could imagine it would be. But the younger monk wanted to strike out on his own. So he formed a band in the late 70s, and in 1980, his debut House of Music album hit the streets. The single, Bon Bon B, which means good, good life in French, was a top 20 R&B tune that also cracked the Pop 100 charts. The success of Bon Bon B made the commercial music world take notice, and they were primed for more. But tragedy struck and forced T.S. Monk out of music for several years. Eventually, he found his way back to his jazz roots. Bon Bon B, which I can't believe, plays on the radio across this country every day in the year 2022. I made that record 40 years ago, 42 years ago. Made that record in 1980. People absolutely adore it. And I'll tell you another way that I, I really feel fortunate. America does not like people who switch horses in midstream. You know, Republicans become Democrats. They don't like that. You know, they don't, you know, they didn't like when Donna Summer tried to be a country western artist. They didn't like that. You know, when Barbara Streisand tried to be a disco artist, they didn't like that. So when I became an RB at artist and I used to tour. My band was uh, along with my sister, who unfortunately passed away from breast cancer in 1982. That essentially ended my R&B career because we were partners. But we used to tour with Cool and the Gang and Slave, <laughs> Conjunction, the Gap Band, Sky, uh, Sister Sledge, all of we We used to do the whole Shitland circuit down south and all that. Then I stopped playing for six years. I didn't do any playing, no drums, no nothing. I was shell-shocked from my sister passing away. So when I came back to jazz in 1992, frankly, I didn't expect to be accepted. Wow. I, I expected the jazz audience to say, oh, man, you gave up jazz, man. So don't be coming back. Don't be coming back here now trying to sneak in the back door. Don't be sneaking, right? And the jazz community accepted me. I'm eternally grateful for that because it didn't have to go that way. And, and it doesn't always go that way for people when they sort of switch horses in midstream. Although, Uh although, (laughs) I think I had amassed some good karma because from 1984 until 1992, other than founding the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, I didn't play any music. Mm. I mean, none. But a brother came to me. I was living in Brooklyn at a time. And this brother comes to me, who was a friend of a cousin of mine. And his name was Denroy Morgan. And Denroy Morgan had a huge hit called I Do. Do you remember that? I Do, I Do, I Do, I- Do, 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 Do. Okay. Yes. <laughs> it, was, it was exactly. Everybody knows I do. Right. So he comes to me. My cousin brings him to my house and he says to me, hey, man, man, I got I, I got these children and they, you know, they got a group. But I need somebody to teach them how you produce records, how you do things, you know, mm-hmm. how you write songs and all this kind of stuff. So I said to the brother, I said, yeah, okay, well, you know, I don't know, man, because I'm not doing nothing. (laughs) How how many kids you got? So he says, well, my brother, 27. 27? Just what you said. I said, 27? He said, yeah, yeah, man. I said, well, where are they? He said, they're all in the house over there on Bushwick (laughs) Avenue. But there's only nine of them in the group. Right? Oh, okay. And so I wasn't doing anything. And I said, all right, send them over and I'll, because I had a little studio in my house in the basement that I wasn't really using. But I said, send them over. I'll see what I can teach them. So I spent like the next year teaching these kids. Today, probably the biggest group in Jamaica are my kids. And they're called Morgan's Heritage. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> those were my kids. I think in many ways, because I did that with those kids, there God go. was good to me and let the jazz community accept me when I came back a few years later to the jazz community. I've just been lucky on so many different levels and my, my life has just moved all kinds of which ways from the days of growing up with Max and, and Miles and Dizzy to becoming an R&B artist and making a classic <laughs> R&B hit to quitting music and then tutoring Morgan's Heritage and then coming back to jazz and then fortunate. I'm a drummer band leader. I'm in my 29th year of being a drummer band leader, 28th year, and there hasn't been a lot of us. Now, you got a lot of great drummers. Don't misunderstand me. You got a lot of great drummers, and every once in a while, they make a record, but they don't really, they're not the marquee name right. every time they perform. And I've been the marquee name for 28 years, and so that puts me in a class with Max Roach and Art Blakey and Roy Haynes Hip Ensemble, Buddy Richard's Big Band and Chick Webb and Big Sick Catlett. But there hasn't been a whole lot of us that can say I'm a drummer band leader, and right. that was my dream. <laughs> that was my dream in the beginning to become a drummer band leader, and here I am in 2022. Here you are. I'm talking to you. I'm working on my. I think this is my 13th record as a band leader, and. It's very humbling. Well, you know something I learned in rock and roll? What? You go up to a rock and roll cat, you say, oh, you got a band? What kind of band is that? <laughs> a rock and roll dude will tell you, this is the greatest rock and roll Robert. band of all time, right? And jazz musicians, I notice, have a tendency, you know, you say, oh, what kind of music do you play? They say, oh, well, I play jazz. <laughs> you know? And I said, no, 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 no. I ain't one of them guys. You ask me what kind of... I will tell you, I play jazz. I don't care if you don't like jazz. If you come and hear my band, you're going to like my band. You're going to like jazz. And so I'm that way about putting myself. But beyond that, I'm a very, very humble cat because <laughs> life could go another way. I realize that there are so many, so many absolutely marvelous jazz musicians that never see the light of day. People never hear their music. They can't get a gig. They put out records and nobody buys them. And I know about that side of the business. And so I feel very, very fortunate that people buy my records, people come to my concerts. Because as I say, and I repeat it over and over again, life could go another way. It really, really could. And, and I can't tell you how many musicians I grew up with that were marvelous, marvelous musicians that it just didn't happen for them. Although... I did come up with the likes of the great vocalist Angela Bofield. We were friends since teenaging. Onaje Allen Gums, Noel Pointer, Ray Chu, Nat Adderley Jr. I mean, you know, a lot of cats that I came up with, what I call badasses today. But there's also the majority, nothing ever happened for them. That's sad. Now that we're all caught up on T.S. Monk, many of you may be wondering what's going on with the movie that was slated to come out about Thelonious Monk. Last year, it was announced that rapper and actor Mo Stuff would play the jazz great on the big screen. But soon after, Mo Stuff backed out of the project. T.S. Monk explains what happened. 
It's complicated. I it had, sounded complicated. <laughs> there was a group that had approached me to do a major film, and we couldn't come to any agreement. But what they had done, and I'll be very frank, they had told a number of people, including most deaf, that they had the backing of the family, and they did not have the backing of the family. Put out this big press release, and it was a tremendous amount of excitement, and I had to do my own press release and say it was all bullshit. And the most interesting thing to come out of it was, number one, everyone was very excited about most deaf yeah. playing Thelonious. And then even more exciting to me to that was that most deaf is family. He and I just found this out. The African-American diaspora is just unbelievable, and particularly in this country. We're not that separated. We have familial ties together. Oh, you, you guys he, did he one was, of those DNA tests or something? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so, so he was very upset that he had been sort of hoodwinked into thinking. And he immediately released a statement to the press that he wasn't doing nothing without the family. And so right now, I've been talking with several different groups about a major movie on Thelonious Monk. And we want to get it right. So I'm taking my time, but I'm talking with some very substantial people and some very substantial A-list actors who I will not say who they are, Darn. but they are A-list African-Americans. <laughs> and uh, Thelonious is due because Thelonious doesn't have the baggage that a lot of the other cats have. Yeah. He was never a dope fiend. He didn't diss his wife and his women and his children and all of that. It's going to be an uplifting story. His documentary, Straight No Chaser, changed. It actually changed the way jazz documentaries were presented. And that was the first really major jazz documentary in 1985. And then his book by uh, Dr. Robin Kelly, it's called An American Classic, Thelonious Monk. It's 1,300 pages. That has changed jazz documentaries in the uh, literary world. And of course, Thelonious changed the music himself. And so I look to a movie on Thelonious to really change the dynamic of jazz movies because jazz movies have mostly been about tragedy. Yes, Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker, they succumbed to drug overdoses. Billie Holiday's life was actually a triumph. We love her. We adore the music she left us. We love and adore the music Charlie Parker left us. That's why we remember them. We don't remember them because they had a problem with drugs, because lots of people had problems with drugs. But we remember them because of their great artistry. And so with Thelonious, I want to make sure that the story of Thelonious Monk is a story of triumph. He had a wonderful marriage to a wonderful woman, Nellie, my, my mom. He had wonderful relationships with all the musicians around him. I mean, his being on the cover of Time magazine in 1963 was a major step for jazz because it apprised not only America, but the world to the importance of jazz in the big picture. And although he had serious emotional problems, spent time in mental institutions, that's not why we remember Thelonious Monk, you know, and for a guy that uh, they said, well, you know, he plays the wrong notes. And, you know, you know, his style is pretty odd. You know, he's not uh, the greatest piano player in the world. And his tunes are so simplistic. 
blah, 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 all that ugly stuff they used to write about Thelonious. Thelonious is now second only to Duke Ellington as the most recorded composer in the history of jazz. His composition, Round Midnight, is in fact the most recorded composition in the history of jazz. And I say that Thelonious is the only triple threat in the history of jazz. And I'll tell you why. Every jazz musician, every jazz musician wants to play their instrument in a fashion that cannot be copied. And everybody knows nobody can copy Monk. Nobody. And every jazz musician wants to write the tunes that everybody wants to play. Everybody from Duke Ellington to Billy Strayhorn to Miles Davis and John Coltrane, all those guys have accomplished those two. But Thelonious also played in a way that nobody could copy, wrote the tunes that everybody wanted to record, and did those two things in a fashion that moved the entire genre forward. So when they say to you, Thelonious Monk is the high priest of bebop, Mm -hmm. you have to say, well, that's true, but he's the father of modern jazz. And no monk, not only no parliament, funkadelic, but no Coltrane, no Bud Powell, no Miles Davis, because he mentored personally all of those gentlemen. And he was just one for the ages. And I pinched myself on a regular basis and say, this guy was my father. Of all the cats in music I could have been born to, I was born to this guy Thelonious Monk. It's absolutely amazing. T.S. Monk for our great conversation about your new album, Two Continents, One Groove, and the much-needed history lesson about your father, Thelonious Monk, and the importance of jazz. For more information on this episode, please go to undergroundmagnolia.com. That's undergroundmagnolia.com. Just click on this show and all info, including links, will be there. While on my website, you will also see all of my podcast episodes, which can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Please listen, rate, and review. Email me with anything at contact at undergroundmagnolia.com. That's contact at undergroundmagnolia.com. Follow me on Twitter at UMPodcastDV. That's UMPodcastDV. Unfortunately, my Instagram was hacked and I had to get a new account, which is at Underground Magnolia Podcast, at Underground Magnolia Podcast. Till next time, this is Desiree Valto, the only Desiree Valto on the planet. For Underground Magnolia Podcast, I'm out. <laughs>